0: You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode one hundred and five. to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about conservation issues from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today's guests on the show are Ari Herman and Liz George. Ari and Liz both spent extended periods of time living at Standing Rock, North Dakota, and participating in various ways in the fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline. Liz has a background in wildlife filmmaking, while Ari, who contributed to our last podcast episode about Standing Rock, is an aspiring writer and a journalist. Both of them were living at the camps at Standing Rock during what was probably the most tumultuous period of the movement thus far, from mid-November through early December. We talked with Liz and Ari about their personal experiences at Standing Rock from the moment that they decided to go there to the moment that they left after the Army Corps of Engineers denied the easement for the pipeline to cross the Missouri River. Let's jump into the conversation.
1: My name is Liz George. I am 26 years old. I'm from the Detroit metro area, and I've worked in the film industry for a long time. I most recently was working in South Africa. Wildlife conservation.
2: My name is Ari Herman. I'm from Northern California. I'm 31 years old and I uh, work as an aspiring writer, um, which means I have a lot of part time work on the side while I um, get a career started.
0: Thanks a lot to to both of you for coming on the show and being willing to share your perspective. You know, I want to start things off by sort of going back and talking a little bit about the decision that each of you guys made to go to Standing Rock. Um, I kind of want to get inside your brains and sort of figure out like what was going on in your life at that point. Was there like one particular thing that, that inspired uh, the decision?
1: I was in South Africa when the news started picking up about it. And it was really hard to be there watching everything that was going on because I felt very drawn to go there. Um, For me, it was a meeting place of a couple different things Uh, I was working in South Africa in wildlife conservation. And to me, it felt like in many ways, a similar fight in that um, we're essentially destroying our earth, killing our animals. And basically, it was a fight to protect our natural world against human greed, corporate greed. Uh, It's also like an indigenous led movement. And that appealed to me because it's been a long time and I've always felt like they've kind of been the invisible people of our nation and to be in a place where their voices were at the center and they were leading it was very powerful. Um, and then there was this moment I was in a bookstore and I was reading Gloria Steinem's latest book. And that was kind of the moment where it kind of clicked for me. She, there's like a line where she talks about following your instinct whenever like if there is some kind of event or some movement or a rally going on and you feel like everything's working against you but you just feel really drawn to it she basically says against all logic just go and I read that and I remember thinking like like standing rock just popped into my head and I was like I have to go and it was this weird really powerful calling um, that I didn't fully understand. So I basically got home from South Africa and like packed my bags in a day and drove out to standing Rock.
0: All right. How did that decision come about for you?
2: I feel like our, um, we have this sort of conscience or higher sensibility about things that can sometimes feel like a little whisper. And I felt like I had that hit me really strongly one evening in particular. I had just moved back from Seattle. I'd been pursuing a publishing internship and living out there for about six months. Um, My sister had a kid, and I really wanted to go home. And I felt called home, basically in my heart. I wanted to be closer to family, and uh, but I was having trouble being here and like having. um, I love where I'm from, and I want to stay here, but there's there's not a lot of calling and real personal purpose for it. So I went out with some friends one night, and I had recently heard Amy Goodman's report about uh, the dogs attacking the natives, and it was just feeling horrible because. Being in this country as uh, an American citizen, a beneficiary of uh, colonialism, it feels like this sort of skeleton in the closet—like something really terrible that happened at a holiday years ago and nobody talks about it anymore. But like, it's like being in a gang, and you knowing that the gang kills people, and that uh, you benefit from it, but you personally don't kill people. And that's sort of is how I describe like the Northern California like lefty mentality. It's like, well, I didn't personally do it. Um, but I also feel like we're beneficiaries of state policy. And this is an example of state policy with a very racist tone to it. Standing Rock represented this intersection between indigenous rights, environmentalism and, um, uh, character of our own country. And I just felt disgusting about it. So I was out with some friends, sorry to go on a tangent there, but I was out with some friends and I felt like I was kind of chasing the unicorn a little bit as far as like, or chasing the dragon for, things that used to gratify me when I was younger, like going out dancing and getting drunk, but it really wasn't working. So I just took a deep breath and I, you know, asked myself, okay, well, what is my heart telling me now? And in three days I was on the road to Standing Rock and, um, I wanted to go for seven to 10 days, but I ended up staying for almost two months.
0: It's not easy to make that decision, even if you're, you know, for myself, like, I was able to go out to Standing Rock only for a few days, so it, it it didn't have nearly the impact on on my life that that it's probably had on on either of you because you spent a longer period of time out there. But the the decision was still like it, it felt like this important moment in 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 my life. I I can relate to both of those experiences that you guys described. I, I want to talk about, you know, what, what it was like when each of you first arrived there in standing rock. Um, you know, what were those first few days? Like
2: I came there with a lot of purist ideas about it and, um, was gratified to, uh, encounter sort of what I expected, which was, uh, on a combination. I, I got into Ocheti Sakowin camp at, um, somewhere early in November. And, um, there was a sacred fire and drumming and so, um, solidarity and prayer and all of these different kinds of people all working together for civil rights on on treaty land and it was a beautiful impassioned um, situation. Um, I met people very quickly in that sort of happenstancey, haphazard way, like the first time you go to Burning Man or something, like it all feels really meaningful. And there's this, there's this bright, um, sense of like a mission and a directedness. And as the, as I got there, um, it sort of bulldozed all of my doubt about going and I felt really secure. The front line was to the North. These were your people. And, um, that changed over time, but that was pretty steady for a couple weeks.
1: So I went there with like, not really a, like a good idea of what was going on like what was going on in camp specifically like i had heard all the news reports but i didn't there's that whole aspect of camp life that the media wasn't really portraying because it was so intricate and there was so much to it more than just the actions and and the you know that those like big moments where it like the dogs and there was such a strong sense of community um and i spent Probably the first three or four days. So I got there mid November. I spent the first three or four days just getting to know camp, finding myself my way around, meeting people, and like forming these like really, really, really strong friendships. Um, I didn't go on actions until until the twentieth happened, and then after that, I started going on actions. But for me, that first like three or four days was just finding myself in that community and finding my place in it. It was just. So different from what I expected, because, again, like the media only shows one side of it. And there was just so much more to it than just just the actions and just a really strong sense of community.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I I definitely experienced that as well. I mean, I was only there for for a few days. So that was my sort of my complete experience at Standing Rock. But I mean, I really felt like, as you said, Liz, that that I, I really had no idea what to expect from life in camp, like what that community was going to be like, or if there even was like something like a community. I mean, like you said, I mean, that's that's not something that was really being covered at all in the media. And I was actually surprised by how organized everything felt and um, by how sort of open that that community seemed over that short period of time um i i think i expected something a little bit more chaotic which you know again i i so i'm only talking about a short period of time so i mean i'm sure there were those periods that that were a lot more chaotic um that was just sort of my impression was like wow this this really is more organized than than i expected and i was just blown away by you know what what people were doing and 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 how passionate they were about this this mission right so how did your perspective start to change you know as you spent more time out there um I mean were there specific events that sort of like dramatically shifted that that perspective, or did this sort of happen slowly over time uh i I mean what what happened as as each of you you know sort of spent spent more time in camp so
1: for me, like I was there for three weeks, and I feel like every single week was so different from the next um my first week was a lot of meetings, kind of trying to find my place in camp. Um, And then the second week was when was pretty much like the 20th, the night of the 20th and then going forward from there. And that was a very emotional week. Um, That's when I started going on more actions and getting a lot more involved in that sense. Um, And then And that was a really, really difficult, like, emotionally very hard week, uh, just with a lot of different interactions we had with the cops and on the actions. Um, The 20th was very, very draining. It was, um, like, I hate to use this term, but it felt like a war zone. Um, And so there's a lot of emotion that went in that week. And then the next week kind of felt like things were put on like they were just, everything just halted uh, when the announcement that the veterans were coming in was made and actions were no longer being organized and things just kind of slowed down. And that was kind of difficult for me because I had really started to form a rhythm and like, I was really starting to enjoy like going to all the meetings and, and learning so much. And then everything just kind of came to like a stop and, it became a lot more focused on that aspect when I thought that indigenous leadership and and other leadership there was doing a really, really good job with the actions that were going out. So in towards the end, it became like I was a little bit more jaded and not as, um, and feeling a lot of different things, but um, still left with a very, it all, like all in all, it was a very positive experience. It was just every week was just so different from the next. And every single day was also so different from the next. You, you kind of went in with no clear idea of what you were going to do that day, but it felt like my entire days were filled and there was always something unexpected that came up or, um, yeah, it was just every, every single day felt different and enriching in many ways
2: yeah to draft on that whole sentiment um it just changed so frequently like day to day it was always learning always new there was people with all sorts of information that you um that were you got to have access to like the guys who made the rocket stoves the people who organized the actions the uh builders who were building this straw bale schoolhouse in sacred stone um anybody who ran security like how they you know, the, the first thing you learn there is that it's a security culture. You've got the DAPL security apparatus, you've got the lights, you've got the airplane that's circling overhead, the cell phone interference. Um, it's a security culture, and there's infiltrators there, too, and there's rumors. And you ha- the first thing that changed was really looking at people with a sense of, how do I really, without a shadow of a doubt, decide that this person is fully trustworthy? And even if they're trustworthy, are they smart? enough to like protect me and themselves inside of this very unknown danger that's going on out here where things are acute and sort of, um, uh, gradual, um, with, um, regards to fighting the pipeline, you're challenged with unexpected things like an action. Suddenly you're going to go on and you know, then you're standing arm in arm facing riot cops and an LRAD cannon. And there's people around you taking your photograph and you're, you know, you're trying to figure out if this is actually an effective way to stop a pipeline or is this, you know, is this just a really bad idea? But, um, it changed a lot. I, like Liz, you, you get to the end of your day, you're exhausted. You, uh, you worked really hard, you ran around, you saw a lot of people. Um, you had a lot of amazing altering conversations and then you sleep like a baby Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) and it was honestly like, you know, you're sleeping like a baby with like this creepy airplane flying overhead. That's like, (laughs) you know, low low buzzing you, um, without its lights on in a no fly zone and nobody in the world knows about it because you know that the optics are being controlled by the corporate media that wants to turn it into something that the American public can really understand in a simple way, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, the poor natives are, you know, being oppressed by this situation. Like we could, got control of the story when, you know, there was a real strong understanding that this was not only was this um, happening, uh, but it was not. It was definitely not original. This is not. This is like some. It's like your history book coming to life and realizing that it never stopped. Mm-hmm. You know, this is an extension of that stuff. So, um, putting the whole story together was what became a lot of my experience like I felt like for the longest time at Standing Rock I didn't know what I was looking at and I just kept on like every single day waking up from my ignorances and um by the time I left I felt like I had a pretty good handle on it and I was deeply emotionally exhausted and I had been kind of post-traumatically scarred from a couple of really rough things I saw and I just had to go to take my space and wait for what's happening now, which is the Trump presidency is receiving the punted ball from the Obama administration from when they denied the easement on December 5th. Um, and then we're going to see some evolutions in the movement itself. But, um, yeah, I'll be leaving tomorrow for that. So,
0: And I definitely want to sort of get into, like, next steps and, and you know, next steps as far as the movement is concerned, and then also specifically for each of you and, like, you know, where you guys are sort of headed next. But But before we get there... I just have a few more questions about you know the the time that you guys spent at, at Standing Rock, Liz. You know you you've mentioned uh, November twentieth a few times as sort of like a turning point for you and and the experience that you had there. What happened on the twentieth?
2: Backwater Sunday.
1: Yeah. So for for me, like um, I was down at the medic tent, and I actually played. And this is like kind of an example of how everything just kind of shifts. And everything is so unexpected and your ideas of what's going to happen are so different from what actually happened. So I had actually planned on going to bed early that night. I was thinking like 30, 7 p.m. early bedtime. And I went to the medic tent to get something and that's when they started bringing the first like casualties in. So they basically were just like people were screaming for medics and I had no idea that anything was going up on the br- going on up on the bridge. This was probably around like 7 p.m., and the first people that came in, I think, were like hit by rubber bullets, tear gas maced. So my friend and I, we we like ran to my car. I grabbed my cameras and we went up there. And when we got up there, it was just chaos. There were people. I mean, they, they at that point they were hosing people down. They were throwing tear gas canisters it was just extremely chaotic. I got hit with tear gas several times at night. The second time was really, really bad. And that was like my first experience ever being tear gassed. Um,
2: being tear gas sucks.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> really sucks. Yeah. yeah.
1: And like the the first, and I actually got the worst. So I got hit really bad the second time. Um, Cause I was so close to it. And I just like dropped to my knees, dry heaving, can't see. Uh, almost feel like I'm, I was paralyzed and it was, th- so there's like little moments to me, uh, that night, even as like chaotic and scary and, and horrifying as it all was. Um, there was a kid I'd washed dishes with the night before. Uh, and it was all like very, you know, we had, we had spent like four hours washing dishes in the cold, greasy water and it was the worst, but it was so funny cause we were all like joking about it and we had a great time. And I didn't know it at the moment, but he came. He came over to me. And he grabbed me and like pulled me out of there and gave me water and made sure I was okay. And um, later on, I realized it was him. But it was just moments like that where pe- everyone was kind of looking out for each other. And there were people who were saying like, you know, so a guy came up to me and said something extremely positive and just reassuring, um, something along the lines of like, I'm really glad I'm standing with you on the bridge, something along those lines. And but I was there till probably like four in the morning and um, mostly just sh- like shooting and um, recording what was happening. And then about like I think four in the morning, I took a couple people back to camp that had been maced, hit with rubber bullets, and tear gassed. And then came back to check it one more time. And it I had kind of died down at that point. I think it was like five in the morning and it had died down. Um, there were a few people that were hanging out still, but that was about when it was over. Um, that was my experience. I spent a lot of time, like, right up on either side of the razor wire, on either side of the bridge shooting. Um, Try to stay out of the the line of the water. But one of my closest friends was like, and we got separated when that tier, the second tier gas canister came really close to us. And that's what, when we kind of split up. Um, and I kind of lost track of her the whole night, had no idea where she was and then found out the next morning that she had been right on the front line, right in the line of like being hosed down all night and like pelted with, uh, rubber bullets. Um, so it's just really, it was just, it was just a really emotionally draining, difficult, um, situation to be in. And also something that I don't think any of us, I mean, I don't think like the majority of us have had no experience with this at least I think so um I know I definitely have had like absolutely nothing close to this happen to me and so it was a very unnatural strange surreal experience and it was hard because that kind of that shifted everything for me and then leading into the next day there were a lot of I had like an interaction with the cops and then again the next day after that where we would go into Bismarck and Mandan and be targeted by the police and it just created this like whereas the days before the 20th felt very carefree and I was going to the art tent and I was working in the art tent and like washing dishes or helping in ways that like I found meaningful going to meetings um, everything kind of shifted and it became this like like psychological warfare where I was so paranoid and so nervous every time I saw a cop car and it just created a lot of fear that was not there before the 20th. And then it just became a very emotional week for me after that.
0: I can only imagine that that event shifted something camp wide. I mean,
2: it's, of course it changed things, but it also, um, it also sort of fit the expectation that, um, that we all understood, which was that we're we're fighting for something with a tactic that really goes beyond the people that were hurting us. And it focuses more on, we try to try to keeping, try keeping it much more about like the policies that we're opposed to. Um, and fighting for the change of those policies in a nonviolent way, because that's the only recourse we have is to demonstrate the amorality of those, of those policies that allow a pipeline to threaten the water supply for an indigenous people, um, and threaten the environment for everybody, including the police's livelihoods and families. So you had, you kind of had made, it made a lot of made for a lot of reflection on a lot of people's parts. Like where even that night on the 20th, like you had to ask yourself, like, where am I going to be in all of this? You know, am I in the middle of the bridge? Am I at the back doing supply runs? Am Mm -hmm. I at the front? Like, where do I feel the most? Um, who, who am I in this? Is a lot of what sort of came up for me afterwards. I can't speak for everyone else, but I know that after the um, after the twentieth, I um I definitely took on a lot of um, a lot of understanding of the potentials of like real danger if these things get out of hand. Um, and there's definitely elements on Standing Rock side, a few anyway, that um, are really angry because they've got historical trauma or. They just don't know how to fight in a nonviolent way, and they're trapped there. You know, I get to go home at the end of this, but this is like an existential threat for them. So we came to serve the community there, but it's their fight. It's a very strange place. To, it's hard to sort of put it all into like a coherent um, understanding. Um, I don't. I don't really personally remember. I don't know if you do. Liz, about what changed in camp, how the vibe was.
1: Um, I remember the week after the twentieth, we took. So the week of the 20th, we took a couple of days of just, uh, to just decompress. And that was like, no actions were going out. Or there was an action that went out the day after the twenty, like the 21st. But then after that, it was just like two days of allowing everyone to decompress and take time for themselves and to heal because it was a very emotional and difficult day. And then from there, um, there was like regrouping and I felt like the actions that that went out and the planning was a lot stronger. And so that kind of, that vibe kind of changed where, and that could be just my perception because I hadn't been involved in the actions before the 20th, but it felt like there was a lot more organization. There were larger action council meetings. There were several throughout the day, whereas normally there's only one at 8am. And so then there were like, um, like these bigger, bigger meetings that, kind of uh, helped with the organization a little bit better. And then after that, towards the end of the week, was when the announcement of the veterans coming happened, and then that's like kind of slowed everything down on our end. And there was a lot less organizing that was allowed internally, and it was more focused on what the veterans were going to do. That changed the vibe for me a lot. But the one thing that I did notice was, like, the sense of community that I felt just became stronger and stronger, especially after the 20th. And it was a place where you could be so vulnerable. There were a lot of moments where I would just start crying because I felt so overwhelmed. And the response was that strangers would just walk up to me and hug me and ask me, ask me if they could hug me and ask me if they could do anything to help. And just such a supportive environment that I was in. Um, Yeah, so it just felt like the community got stronger and stronger and really uplifted each other because of this, like, shared traumatic experience that we had all gone through together.
0: Yeah, it was very
2: galvanizing. Um, You know, I think the outside world, like, we were sort of, you know, we were definitely supported materially in such an intense way, but afterwards I felt like what I saw from the outside was uh, we really became everybody's favorite underdog football team. Yeah. because, um, um, we, you know, we had taken, we had taken a beating and we had taken it with, with real dignity. I felt, um, I felt, you know, but was what kind of, I had this like internal dissonance where it was difficult for me to accept the praise from people about being there. Um, and saying that it was brave because there were times that night that I felt like a coward, like mm-hmm. it was scary as fuck. Excuse me. Um, but, uh, you know, you're getting, you're, you're seeing people get smacked in the head with, with canisters and you're in you know, tear gas makes you feel like you're drowning and being burned at the same time. Uh, and I had that happen to me three times out there. I, uh, I was next to a girl who got shot in the head and I left very sh- very shortly before, um, Sophia was, uh, hit with a concussion grenade and her arm was almost amputated. And then I got to watch Morton County lie their asses off about us making bombs you know, they're just playing dirty and they're lying. And I, I lost a lot of respect for the opposition's like stance as like just protectors of the peace after that because I realized they were total cowards and willing to do and say whatever they needed to to, to work on public perception. And what we were trying to do was bring out the truth of the situation, which is obviously a very suspicious statement as a supporter of one side of it but they were doing deliberate things to mar and distort everything that we were saying and doing so i um i became a little less of an apologist for um the state and for the tactics that they were using i understood their ideological differences but i felt like they were they were really disgusting people in a lot of not all of them as like every single cop out there of course but we were getting shot at by people who didn't care because it was a job and we were getting shot not getting paid, you know, because we did care. It was just like the irony was very strange. Mm
1: -hmm. Like we weren't there to profit off of it. Yeah. like like, like, We were there for,
2: yeah. Yeah. My quarterly report's looking so much better now. Um, (laughs) But um, (laughs) we walked away with a really strong education from that night. And I think it really, it was a growing experience for a lot of us. And it it propelled the movement towards some pretty um, steep cliffs edges for Dapple and for Morton County they really they were really close to to losing this fight because of how disgusting they had acted that night, but you know they found ways to to finagle the situation since then
1: well, one of the things that I really appreciated after the twentieth was there's was this like outpouring of support, and we were like the underdog right and so there was a lot of people who sent just It wasn't even, like, the um, material things. A lot of the things that I appreciated the most were the notes that came along. Oh,
2: such lovely things. Yeah, Yeah. and there was,
1: like, there were this group of second graders from this, (laughs) um, this school in Philadelphia that sent these just the most adorable notes. And one of them says, you are doing something, and they are being mean to you all. I hope you all feel better from your friend, Anna. And there's just, like, the cutest, there's, like, one that's just so adorable, I don't want to read it, but there's, like, one that says, don't kill them. (laughs) Just the cutest notes. And so they, on Thanksgiving, they had hung them up all over the, one of the high schools where they were serving dinner. And it was just, like, I mean, I was sobbing as I was reading these because they were just so precious, these little children who um, were just writing these, like, heartfelt letters and probably not really understanding too much of what was going on, but in that, like, like whatever age they were, understanding that, like, we were being hurt, and that's, like, and they just couldn't stand for it, and they wanted to uplift us. And then there was a woman in Greece who sent a, a ton of money just for specifically chocolate and handed out. And so it was little things like that where it was it was those small little things that just really were uplifting in a time that was really hard.
2: The gift economy of the place, um, has its disadvantages, but it's incredibly, um, gelling to have continually the ability to turn to people and give them what they need. It just, um, it creates for some really long, um, good relationships to be able to support people that way. And those notes, You know, they think you say writing a congressman doesn't always work or like what use is a letter in a battle. But it really makes a huge difference when you're having a lot of personal trouble. And strangely, you can't actually talk to everybody about what's going on for you, usually, because Mm -hmm. they're all in it as well. And like you can have a good gallows humor about it, but like you don't break down very often. At least I didn't because I didn't feel like, well, it's everybody's burden in a way. But, you know. These notes from these second graders are hilarious. Like, the, yes. there's a picture here of like a, a jack o' lantern with a pipeline bursting, and then some. I think it's a water it's protector. Like it's, a water, says, it's
1: a water cannon.
2: It's a water cannon. Oh, he's spraying, and and he, and there's like a, a scary looking water protector that says "stop," and it says, "My name is King. I am a second grader in Philadelphia. I stand with you. I hope you are okay." <laughs> like, I mean, it's it's silly stuff, but like. You don't realize you need it until you read it. And you're like, yeah. oh,
0: that's
1: so sweet. <laughs> I know it really was one of the most uplifting things.
2: It's not yeah. easy to stand up against our government, you know. But um, but even the most, you know, there's a re- there's a real no duh about it, you know. And even a second grader gets it.
0: I, I mean, both both of you guys, right? I mean, all three of us really are involved in in, in some form of journalistic endeavor. That's, you know, sort of the reason that, that all three of us uh, were sort of inspired to, to go to Standing Rock in the first place. And in the field where I work in, like conservation and wildlife, and, and Liz, you know, it sounds like you, you work in a very similar field. Most conservation issues or wildlife issues are not black and white. It's always gray. There's never a good guy and a bad guy. But this issue, it, it's so much clearer. It's so clear that a second grader could understand it. Right. It's like and and it and it's so in your face, you know, like you watch that footage and you see what was done by the police on that bridge on the 20th. And it's like, how can you empathize with the aggressor in, in, in a situation like that? In my mind, that's one of the things that is really unique about this. So, obviously, both of you guys were involved in, like, lots of different aspects of, of what was going on in camp during your time spent there, but both of you were also involved in sort of journalistic endeavors, and, like, you know, you were both wanting to sort of show people what this was really like, what this experience was like, and what was really going on on, uh, on the front lines. What was your sort of approach, uh, and and how did that evolve?
1: I've worked in the film industry, and I've worked with cameras and that kind of stuff, but I've not ever like had an outlet for it uh or personally had an outlet for it I've always worked for people so this was like a very interesting experience because I felt like the one thing that could get the word out the easiest for me was social media and I think that's that's how a lot of people were able to like Kevin Gilbert's videos that went viral um on the night of the 20th that kind of stuff is what people got got people aware of what was happening that night in real time this is far from like what like traditional journalism is, but I think like the Facebook live streams are great. Um, a great way to like show people what was happening at the moment. And especially because they weren't edited and it was just, this is what's happening because everything else does get kind of like tainted with a person's, like as unbiased as people like say they are, it does get touched with, um, their personal bias and gets edited and whatnot. And so I think those, those platforms were for me, very interesting to see what was going on and to share.
2: Whatever your medium is as a storyteller, um, it's like a car and there's different kinds of fuel that you can burn in it. Standing rock and the night of the 20th in particular was just a very volatile substance and a lot more, it was just very combustible, a lot of power inside of it. I've only done uh, travel log writing, travel writing and, um, memoir and, uh, a little bit of literary immersion journalism. And I was going there because I really wanted to extend optics, um, on the movement back to my home. Uh, because I felt that what I was seeing on the news just sort of stank of a reductionistic and not very complete story. Um, and I felt that I could do better, um, for, you know, for using my voice there. But, uh, the 20th, um, It fell into the format that everything has been in since the printing press, which is murder and mayhem. I mean, I guess way earlier than the printing press, but like if it bleeds, it leads. And it was a very excited, elevated um, situation that um, in some ways was a pretty pristine way to package the the conversation that caused the whole thing to reach that fever pitch that night, which was how do we act as two nations in a respectful way? Um, how do we keep in mind sovereignty in the history of 500 years of oppression and a slow genocidal policy? How do we, how do we roll that stuff back? I think that it's, it reminds me of the film adaptation when he gets to the, close to the end of it and he says, it's all been very thinky and thoughty. And then the, the, um, he's been writing a book and then this character says, you you need to go back there and put the action in. And, um, the actions were really the most, um, the, were the most potent encounter with, um, with the real, um, difference in, uh, policy here. Like the night of the 20th was, was completely, um, put on by people who didn't have organization. They learned that there was drilling going on and it felt like now or never. And we just all went, but all the other actions before that, largely that I had been on had been really organized, tight, little organized affairs that, um, had leadership and, uh, and in and out. And it was very different kind of feeling than like just people, freaking out like their life depended on it because it very much felt that it did.
0: Ari, you actually became involved in the official media team for the uh, Ocheti Sakowin camp. And I mean, I I think a lot of people don't even realize that there is an an official media team uh, for the camp. Uh, I mean, how did you sort of get involved in that? And then, you know, what was it like to to be a part of, of that group of people?
2: It was like being inside of some sort of archetypal schizophrenic brain or something. It was really weird. Everyone had very different temperaments and, like, automatic ways of reacting to situations mm-hmm. and um, how they approached the particular stress. Um, how it happened for me was I was at a meeting at Sacred Stone, and I uh, I commented that I felt um, – it was un- that it was not a good idea for us to cease doing actions as had been recently reported. We were going to stop actions for thirty days, and I said, "That's crazy! Like we're 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 capitulating. We're folding. This is bad news. Don't do it." And uh, I said that at a meeting, and um, in the course of that meeting, I met this woman who uh, needed help on a website she was developing. So I worked with her, and the next day when I was working with her, my email got compromised, and I reached out to a uh, reverse IP service to see what the uh, where it had come from, and it was the state of North Dakota's servers that had done it. So suddenly, I, I've been targeted, and or I have a sensation I've been targeted. I don't think I could make that stick in court, but my search revealed that it was the internal technology department of the state of North Dakota that owned the IP address where somebody tried to break into my email from, and I, I linked it to saying what I said at the meeting. So suddenly, I'm working on another story. I've maybe put out three or four stories on my blog already. But now I have one with a smoking gun that's less of a, that's not exactly like a, uh, you know, my time at Standing Rock, you know, a journal entry by Ari Herman. It's, um, hey, look at this thing. Isn't that really, really, really stinky? So in searching for the people that I needed to interview, I went to uh, the media center where I met Geeks Without Bounds, and I met, oh, Shetty Saku Camp Media, and um, they were receptive to writers. They didn't have enough of them. Um, They had a lot of videographers. They had photographers. Um, but I ended up writing about three or four stories for them. Um, and in the course of doing that, I got picked up by a publication in Colorado called Yellow Scene Magazine. And, um, it was just sort of happenstance. I just was in the right place at the right time and I had a story to tell.
0: I, I wonder if, if either of you guys felt torn between your desire to talk about like what you were seeing on the ground with a desire to, to maintain, uh, uh an overall like positive image of the movement. Like did, did those two ideas ever come into conflict uh
2: yes they did y- you know the sensation of unity from the outside it's like they say that uh, they say mental illness is the secret that every family keeps from each other <laughs> um and i don't i don't mean to say people at standing rock are mentally ill or anything but i'm i i, I anal- the analogy is unity i think that the perception of unity from the outside is um is amusing to me because um it really, it really pressurizes everybody who's in Standing Rock into a sort of like Sartre's no exit like situation where you've got people that you have to work with, and it's difficult because there's a certain amount of give and take and different personality types. Um, there was enough going on there that towards the end, um, I had a lot of trouble. My my sensation of the purity that I talked about in the first two weeks was highly degraded, running into a lot of you know rough situations, encounters with uh, classism, racism on our side um, from certain individuals, but like it wasn't a widespread thing by any means. There was just, there was just factions of it now. And again, that you ran into where you're like, I'm not going to go on that. I, I remember going on an action in Mandan on Thanksgiving day. And the, the signs had a message that I was really offended by, um, that were not, um, in any way, an olive branch or a way to win over the public. They were aggressive and, um, they were racist. And, um, they were not put on by anybody at, at camp that had any – it was not a sanctioned event, and none, and none of us knew it when we went on the action. And the next day, there was a lot of outcry about that. I sought out leadership, and I said, yo, what the hell was that about? And they're like, we didn't sanction that. We are all about civil rights. This was not something that we wanted to – a message we wanted out there. But I realized that there's a sort of mm, – there's a vein of ethnocentrism that can be detectable at Standing Rock where it's tribalism. It's, it's us versus them. And it's based on the tint of your skin, and that's. And I really have to stress that this is not the majority, but this does exist. And I just did my best to say, you know, I'm not fighting for that. I'm fighting for civil rights.
1: I think that every movement is going to have like isn't isn't perfect, and on the outset, it does look like we are extremely unified, but I also think that's that's the reality of so many conflicting personalities and. Having to work with that, and also the fact that there were factions that were more extreme. But the message that I got from the overall leadership was that we went, and that our mission was to go on actions in a peaceful and prayerful manner, and that was stressed over and over and over and over again. And so, like things like the the Kill the Pilgrim um, action, which again was organized by a very specific faction that you know, kind of went out on their own and did that. And the other thing about actions is that you you didn't really know what was going on. So nothing, no information about what was going on was released until, like, basically the location of where you're going was released five minutes before you left. And then when you got there, that's when you were given more information about what, what exactly was going to happen. So a lot of people went on that action having no idea what it was about. And the reason for that is there are infiltrators, there are potentially like undercover law enforcement that has infiltrated. So everything had to be kept under wraps. But in in that process, people did end up going on actions that they just could not stand behind. And so there definitely was, you know, this idea of focusing on decolonization, and that it was an indigenous centered movement. And there were moments where I felt like, for me, it could be a little bit divisive, because there were people, there were white people who came there with very open hearts and with very good intentions. And at times, it felt like the message was kind of isolating and pushing them off to the side. And so it could be divisive. But for me, overall, it felt Um, and I try to focus on and align myself with the people that whose message I could really stand behind. And I think even moving forward with, with any movement, there's always going to be the more aggressive, violent factions There's going to be the more, um, yeah. And, and it's just about choosing who you stand behind and what message you want to stand behind and,
2: there's people that you can work with and that can see you better than other people. But Liz and I have been talking about this a bit, like how, you know, outside of standing rock, we've lost a lot of steam for ourselves and we feel like we a lot of people don't get it. It's like, it's not like we, it's almost makes you want to have a standing rock support group or something (laughs) where like you can get together and talk about the things that really mattered to you back then. And like, I joke about not wanting to become Walter from, you know, uh lit big lebowski where i'm you know everything's about standing rock there are this isn't standing rock there are rules you know but um but even you experienced that matt like i know that you weren't there for very long but like i know that i can detect from like you having this conversation with us it impacted you for the short time you were there and it's something that your default reality doesn't have the ability to acknowledge um and uh i think that if we take that back to standing rock Um, we can see why these divisions really aren't bridged very easily between say native, a person, a group of people, because this is a small town, you know, a group of native people who are marginalizing the groups of white people, because it's hard to find what the common ground is there. Like, what do we have to share? Because they don't relate to each other's experience. And there's a lot of ignorance there. And there's a lot of, frankly, white shaming going on that I ran into that I had a lot of trouble feeling was very useful and productive. Um, but there were, there were people that, you know, would look at you for being white and say, you know, your complexion is the, is the complexion of the oppressor that has made my life a living hell in some ways that again, that was, you're dealing with intergenerational trauma. So like for as long as I could, I took a deep breath inside of situations where people were being rude to me or dismissive of me and just said, you know what, this isn't the important fight to fight because we just need to be able to fight Dapple. And that's what matters the most right now. But towards the end of it, I had to start turning around to certain native people and being like, yo, you don't get to talk to me that way. I've earned my stripes. I've been tear gassed. I've been targeted electronically. And I've been faced with several opportunities to get arrested or f- seriously physically injured. Back off, basically. And that was actually a really important line to learn how to draw because it's um, it's the evolution of the characteristics of how we relate to each other as 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 groups, as we go forward and figure out how to do well by each other as communities, it's little moments like that I think that really matter.
1: I mean, also speaking to that, like I didn't have quite that experience. Um, I'm also not white, but at the same time, I met a lot of like indigenous leaders and uh, members of the indigenous international indigenous youth council who had a very different mindset than the people that like Ari interacted with, where they were. That, like, the color issue was never a thing. Um, they talked a lot about how this is the first time that we've all stood on. And one of the Indigenous Youth Council leaders, she was crying as she was talking about it. She was saying how this is the first time we've all stood on the same side of the fight together. And this is a big moment. And um, and then I, and so, like, I had, I think for me, it was a lot about just finding the people that, whose message I could accept and who were focusing on unifying. And I also think that in a lot of the meetings, like there were certain aspects that could feel divisive, but there was also a lot of focus on making it inclusive. And um, I think you just had to figure out where to go and who who
0: to hang out with. No two people ever agree on everything, right? And I mean, I mean, this was a a, a town, right? I mean, this became the largest living space for humans on the reservation. So I mean, there, there's that to consider. Just like it's not possible to get however many thousand people together in one place and have them all agree on anything, right? <laughs> right. But I mean, then the other aspect to it is that all of these people are undergoing this unbelievably stressful daily situation. Everybody reacts to that in a different way, and like everybody's tensions are are, are so so high. You know that it, it it's inevitable. I, I I feel like that you know, people are going to have disagreements and, and there's going to be a certain amount of conflict, right? I mean, in, in my mind, that's not, that doesn't necessarily detract from this sort of picture of unity that, you know, the outside world sees when when they think about Standing Rock or when they see the, the footage of it, right? Like, they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. It's like, this is part of our nature as a species. Like, this is how we interact. You get 5,000 or however many people together in one location, like anywhere, no matter what the circumstances and people are going to disagree and there's going to be conflict.
2: You know, it's kind of basic really just figuring out how to like talk with people who you have to work with. Um, it, it started to feel that way. Um, more like, and as, and as the stresses go on and we're winterizing and you know, we're getting our butts kicked, it's, you know, tempers can, tempers can flare, but it's, it's just family kind of stuff, you know?
0: Yeah. You guys have sort of brought us up to this point in time when it was announced um, that that the veterans were going to come and and provide this this support, that short period of time between when that was announced and like when uh, the veterans actually showed up, um, I mean there was a, a like a lot happened within that period of time, um, and, and and I'm sure the environment in, in camp was was very tense. I mean, sort of anticipating this this like really large scale, dramatic. Action and like the largest influx of people that that had had come into the camp up until that point, and then like right at the height of that to have the Army Corps of Engineers, you know, make that announcement. Um, I mean, what, what what was that like, and what was sort of the feeling in camp like leading up to that, and then you know once that announcement was made?
1: I think the veterans said they were coming out first.
0: Yeah, the
2: veterans were going to come yeah. on the fifth,
1: and then the Army Corps said that they were going to evict us, and there was this feeling of do we like for me there's a big feeling of do we stay on Ocheti or should we move over to Rosebud which is on reservation land so there's a little bit of that was a that was an issue that came up
2: like the timetable for the veterans arrival stepped up Tulsi Gabbard deployed with 2 to 4000 cl- troops and Wesley Clark and um junior this uh this very different atmosphere descended on the camp the personal risk element that sort of gave you that sense of like oomph um got really um lesson Like I remember going up to the to the front line to the bridge. Like you can go up to the bridge whenever the hell you want to if you're like in this movement because it's really like yours to make the initiative. And I got turned back by veterans who were saying, "There's for my protection." And I was like, "What the hell?" That's what they say to me. Like, why are you telling me to turn around? Yeah. Um. And I felt like that changed the vibe for me. Um. When the easement was denied, um. At first, I cried because I was, I thought for a second it was victory, and then I took a few. I went outside, smoked a cigarette, and I realized. This is exactly um, the kind of thing that can be such a liability is like you really want a victory so badly that you'll take a false dawn instead of like instead of actually waiting up until morning. Mm -hmm. Um, It makes it so like when you have a strong emotional reaction to something that's happening to you, it almost like makes you automatically suspicious that it's been engineered to Mm -hmm. like make you um, do what the crowd is suddenly doing, which is like they're all hurting suddenly one direction and you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. why are we all, why are we all backing off? Because exactly what, um, what happened, what I was afraid would happen after I heard was that it would be lose saliency in the news cycle because everywhere the world was saying they've won. CNN said the pipeline will be rerouted. That is a lie. That is just, that's the, or it's totally shitty reporting. I mean, they, they should be ashamed of themselves for saying that that's like a certain thing that's going to happen. Um, because I knew that in 24 hours, um, it was going to be out of the news cycle because it would be less important. And there was a lot of important things going on in the world. Aleppo was going on. Um, we have Trump coming into office and like CNN and everyone else. Sorry, it's not to single out CNN, but large news corporate companies are just trying to keep you glued to the tube. And then Sandy Rock ceased to be a financially, um, interesting way to do that. After the army corps denied the easement and everyone thought we won the good guys won. And that's the end of it. But um, it disappeared, and everybody I spoke to since I came back was says, "You guys won, right?" I got text messages, "Congratulations, guys!" And I just felt so sad because I realized that they were playing a really, really smart game, and we were not. You know, they they made a really good move, and we couldn't we couldn't get ourselves back into the move into the middle of things. And um, and uh, then when the veterans left, and the winter really set down upon us, um. It was mostly just like a, it became a fight for survival more than it became a fight to stop Dapple. And that's when the, you know, that's closer to the time that like I started running into bad interactions with people because I think that it got really stressful. I think people realized what had happened and then there was a lot of fear, you know, fear on our side. Like, what do we do next?
0: I mean, you've made it clear that like this, this didn't feel like a real victory, and yet it kind of took a lot of that power away from the movement and definitely, you know, led to this sort of exodus of people from the camp. I mean, a lot of that would have happened anyways, because the veterans were were only, I think, planning on staying there for, for a limited period of time in, in the first place. But I mean, what, what was it like to see that? And then what was it like to, to make that decision yourself to leave?
1: It was hard to see it. Um, it also coincided with a huge blizzard. And so I think that was another reason that a lot of people left. I left shortly after the announcement, um, mainly because camp felt like it had just kind of, like everything was kind of dying down in terms of actions. It had it had felt that way that week when, like, prior to the veterans arriving, um, the camp-led actions were kind of stopped and the focus was on the veterans. And so it felt kind of like it was hard to find purpose. Um, and it was also really difficult because the weather was so bad that it was difficult to do anything. So there was a kind of a combination of things and I needed to decompress. And I didn't think that I would be able to do it in Standing Rock. So that's a reason I left.
2: Yeah, I left for a similar reason. The optimism and positivity that I could offer the movement had been pretty badly um, depleted. I was constantly operating at a deficit of emotional mm-hmm. energy, and no matter how much time I took to myself to like rejuvenate, um, I couldn't go back and look at it. It was the same sort of. Um, it it just felt like there was a lot of people running around screaming um, in like inside of themselves, and not really much way of like actually getting focused and. Getting things done in a way that wasn't uh, for all for naught, because we didn't have a good. After the easement was denied, we actually had very little um, ability to fight back, because a lot of what gave the movement its its power was the fact that there was an oppressive state apparatus mm-hmm. pushing on us. And I saw this happen at a at the action on on Thanksgiving, when the police took a very wide perimeter, the movement lost a lot of steam. They actually used nonviolence against us. Creating the perception of, of a peaceful victory was one of the most fatal blows that they could have dealt to us because it um, suddenly people realized that the optics looked like they had won, but they knew very well they hadn't won and they had no idea how to get it back because um, they were losing numbers. The troops were leaving. Um, both the veterans and our own people were leaving, the non-indigenous folk. Um, and then the sacred fire got put out. And um, everyone didn't know what it meant. The symbolism was confusing. We had this huge cultural, you know, confusion where it's like, oh my gosh, the sacred fire's out. Like is that symbolic of some sort of death of the camp? And then another fire was lit, but it wasn't sanctioned. It was a prayer fire, not a sacred fire. Um, there was just all these ecumenical things started coming up that I had no understanding of, and I just heard a lot of sort of static of voices um, from leadership and native um, folk that were that was hard for me to understand where the center was. And it became hard for me to want to unify behind it because it felt like it actually didn't know what it was anymore. Um, And once that sort of like spiritual identity crisis started to set in for me, I started to notice how, um, how lonely, tired and exhausted I was. I left basically right before the holidays and, um, and it was the most pleasant uh, decision I had made the entire year. I really wanted to leave with a sense of inner peace, but I wasn't really granted that. Um, It's part of why I'm going back.
1: For me, there was a lot of guilt and shame in leaving. um, Totally. Because it felt like I was abandoning a movement because I didn't have the strength to stick out the winner the way I had planned on. Um, But I also hadn't anticipated seeing a lot of the things that I'd seen and... Uh, experiencing. And I was emotionally drained. And I just kind of held on to one thing that was repeated very often throughout camp, which is to take care of yourself and self care was self care was um, something that was always talked about. And uh, just the idea that if you're not in a good place emotionally and mentally, you're not going to be of any use to this movement. And you needed to step away and you need to step aside and take time to yourself. And so even though there was a lot of guilt, um, about leaving, ultimately, like I knew it wasn't, I wasn't going to be productive. I wasn't going to contribute in a positive way. It felt like I was sucking resources at that point, um, and just staying there and not feeling, um, feeling good like internally and so there's a lot of stuff I needed to work out and that's why I left and as much as it did feel like I was abandoning camp it was I think the right decision to make and I think for a lot of people who had been through a lot it is the right decision to take some time and like Ari's doing to take he took the time and he is going back and that's I think that's very commendable um I still think I have a lot of internal healing to do before i can like head back that way but um
2: yeah there's the terror of that there's going to be another action and you won't be there and somebody will get hurt and maybe you should have been the one who got hurt instead of sophia you know why was it was she the person who walked into the path of that canister because you decided to call it quits early that night Mm -hmm. you know there's these questions that come up about the fates that work around us and Um, it's the kind of stuff that can drive you a little mad, but you, at the end of the day, you do have to practice self care because we're doing a movement that has to do with the, the care of the planet. And yet we're, I I ended up being a chain smoker while I was out there living on coffee and top ramen and like, and, and, and cynicism and gallows humor and, um, lots of dark humor that just got darker to the point where, you know, I quit cigarettes on new year's and, uh, I'm feeling a lot better about life, but I'm also trying to think about when I go back how to not let myself fudge it on self-maintenance, which is what I did for seven weeks out there. And then by the time I was done, I was a freaking wreck.
0: Ari, you've mentioned that, that you are heading back for Inauguration Day. So maybe you can just talk a little bit about you know what you've been up to these past couple weeks and, and what you sort of hope to accomplish by, by going back to Standing Rock.
2: We Liz came out from Detroit to do – we spoke at the ACLU yesterday. And, um, I just loved being able to speak to people who really wanted to know about this. So thank you as well for giving us the opportunity. Um, I'm thrilled to share this conversation with Liz because she's a really great storyteller and, um, uh, she, she gets where she, she gets that crazy far off land that we both came from in in a way that's, it's really helpful and and excited to do the work. We have another one tomorrow at, uh, Guayaquil, uh, Yerba Mate in Sebastopol. And then I'll be leaving on Sunday in a uh, 1996 T-100 with four-wheel drive.
0: I mean, do you have do you have any idea what to expect when you get back to Standing Rock?
2: No. Um, I think it's going to be hard, to be honest. Uh, but probably very educational in a way that's important. I, I know it's going to be kind of a, a wreck, like, in some ways. There's going to be – things are going to be in disarray. Uh, there's going to be – a lot of inane conversations, and there's going to be a lot of people trying to assault, push, you know, push big issues in a way that uh, I'm not sure they know how to push anymore. And I don't even know what leadership are there. Trump's inauguration, I, what I believe is going to happen is he's going to reverse the Army Corps decision, and um, we're going to have that point where we're moving Ose, Oseti Oyate um, out of the area that it was at on Army Corps land. And that's going to lose the front line. So between the loss of the front line and the reinstatement of the easement, um, energy transfer potential
1: pardon. reinstatement of the
2: easement. Um, this, is, this is Ari's <laughs> fantasy land. I appreciate what's qualifying that I'm coming from a very subjective, potentially pessimistic <laughs> reality. Um, I'm hoping that that's not what happens and that we find a way to subvert this uh, administration and its pro-energy sector at, uh, and the environment be damned policy. So that's what I'm expecting is going to happen. What is actually going to happen at Standing Rock, I have no idea. Because every single day at Standing Rock, I was surprised by what the hell happened. Um, And that's part of what I'm hoping will happen is what I'm not expecting. We'll see.
1: I don't know if and when I'm returning to Standing Rock. My kind of goal for the next several months and years is to find causes wherever I am, and um, whether I go back to Standing Rock or not, I think just for everyone to find causes that they really care about in their local area, because that's how we're going to change things.
2: We have to start taking stewardship, because we cannot look to our leaders to do these things. We can organize in a large group of people, and we can know what's right and wrong without having somebody else to come into us and verify it. At Standing Rock, the most important aspect of the whole movement was the active spiritual expression of land-based religions, and to say this is something that is important here and now in this land, and I am connected to this land, and this this land needs me to be its steward. We prayed constantly. I really can't emphasize enough how important. It, I'm a secular person. I had no I had no concept of prayer in my life, and it gave it to me. Yeah, and it gave it to me in a way that like I appropriated a system of prayer using sage and um, cedar and tobacco, but. That can translate differently in my own environment and if I want to burn whatever the hell I want because it's going to give me at least the ability to drop in. And what happened to me when I was on the dance floor asking myself if I was going you know if I was going to stay in California or not was really a question of whether or not I was going to listen to my heart or I was going to just sort of be you know capitulate to not having a relationship with uh, that side of my life and I'm really happy I went out to standing Rock if only for that.
0: Thank you to both you guys for, for coming on the show and for having this, this discussion with me. It, it's an emotional topic, right? And I was asking you guys to sort of tell me about, like, your personal experience uh, uh, with this very difficult experience that you guys went through. And I, I just – I really appreciate this discussion, and I appreciate you guys being so open with me about all this.
2: Thanks, Matt. Thank you for continuing to support the effort.
0: All right. That was our conversation with Ari Herman and Liz George. Standing Rock water protectors, as well as environmental and civil rights activists. I am extremely grateful to Ari and Liz for sharing these stories about their personal experiences at Standing Rock. Both of them went through some traumatic experiences, but they walked away with a sense of empowerment that they couldn't have gotten anywhere else. The perspectives of people like Liz and Ari are particularly important at this point in time, a period in which it is so critically important to learn from what happened at Standing Rock. Despite the extensive mainstream media coverage that this movement received towards the end of 2016, it remained quite difficult to get a sense of what things really looked like on the front lines. We promise to continue bringing you coverage and first-hand accounts from Standing Rock as well as other communities all across the globe that are on the front lines of the increasingly intense conservation crisis that we are currently in the midst of. As always, do not hesitate to share feedback on this or any episode of the podcast. We've created a Facebook group just for this purpose called the EOC Podcast. So follow the link on the show notes page and join in the conversation. Those show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org/slash eoc105 that's w-i-l-d-l-e-n-s-i-n-c dot org slash eoc105 if you enjoyed this episode of the show you can subscribe via iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice you can also leave us an honest rating and review on iTunes which really helps new people discover the show just search for Eyes on Conservation in the iTunes store or follow the link on the show notes page The Eyes on Conservation podcast is a production of Wild Lens. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by the Humidors.